Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Bill Shutt will join us to discuss Pump. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show, the heart. How much do we really know about it? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Bill Shutt. Dr. Shutt is a vertebrate zoologist and author of five nonfiction and fiction books, including the New York Times editor's choice, Cannibalism. He is Emeritus Professor of Biology at LIU Post and is currently a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History, where he studied bats all over the world. He has penned the new book, Pump, A Natural History of the heart. Dr. Shutt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. That's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a, a great book you've put together here, Pump. Why did you decide to put the book together here? A lot of people, when we, they talk to me about it, think it's somewhat of a departure for me. And I, I guess it was when you consider that my last book was about cannibalism and before that it was blood-feeding creatures. But I've always been interested in taking complex topics or topics that are misunderstood and giving them a zoological slant, not using a lot of jargon, keeping it entertaining. And so when cannibalism did as well as it did, it tried to figure out what am I going to write? What's my next project going to be? And so my editors at Algonquin and my agent suggested that I go a bit more mainstream. And, and one of the suggestions that came up was to do a book about the heart. So I started to research it. And I was really surprised because, as you'd imagine, a tremendous number of books out there about the heart, but not the way that I would have written, say, for example, the cannibalism book, where you move through the animal kingdom, you tell interesting stories, you get points across, and you get to teach a bit about some issues that might not tie into the main topic. What I found was that there was room for me to get in there and in this niche where I would go through the animal kingdom first, then go into myths and history. I'm a real fan of uh, medical history and then move through modern technology and then, and then end the book by moving and taking a look at what's to come with regard to the heart. And there were so many interesting stories that I was actually surprised that it got as weird as it did because I thought it was going to be a bit more straightforward, but that was just not necessarily the case. And from a blue whale hearts to early medical practices, uh, the learning curve was really steep for me and, and, and just so incredibly interesting. What was it that fascinated you most? I guess so I have to sort of split it up between the, the animal kingdom and then the, the, the human material. In the animal kingdom, there were just so many interesting creatures that, that it'd be really tough to pick one. Um, the book starts off by telling the story of how some friends of mine that are researchers at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto were lucky. They lucked out, but it's really it starts out sort of unfortunate because nine blue whales died on the ice up in Canada. They, usually these animals sink, and not a whole lot was known about their biology because of that. You know, back in the whaling days, the, the, the whales that didn't sink after you harpooned them, they were the right whales. And blue whales, because they were fast and sank, were the wrong whales. These guys that worked at, at the ROM, they'd been asked all sorts of times because they had whales at whale exhibits 
what's the largest heart in the world? And, and, and they would say, well, it's the, it's the blue whale heart. Well, well, how big is it? Well, it's probably as big as, a, as an SUV. But they didn't really know. And, and when they got the chance to actually recover the heart, because three of these animals washed up, they didn't sink, they washed up on, on remote, small little towns up in Canada. They went up there and they recovered this heart with all sorts of construction equipment. And, and it took literally five years for them to get this heart plastinated and, and on display. And to me, one of the most interesting things about that was that, yes, the heart weighed nearly 400 pounds. So it's this huge, incredible object that you can look at. And they're actually showing it right now up in, at the ROM. But the thing that was most interesting to me was that it was a lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. And so I looked into that. And so, for example, if you look at a hummingbird or a shrew or a little tiny insectivore, it looks like a mouse, their hearts are four or five times larger relative to their body size than the blue whale heart. And so why is that the case? So that type of research where you look at this and you go, oh, all right, well, the hummingbird beats its wings so many hundreds of times per minute that it needs oxygen. It needs nutrients to feed the, the, the muscles that do that work. And so their heart rate gets up to 1,260 beats per minute. And that's crazy. Now, that's probably about the physical limit of how fast a heart can beat. So the really the only other way that you can get more blood to the, say, wing muscles is to have a larger heart. So every time the heart beats, it sends out more blood. So those are the types of stories that intrigued me. And I think I was able to make some connections that weren't really apparent at first. And I don't know if a lot of people think about that sort of thing, but uh, try to make it interesting and entertaining, use humor when appropriate. You know, to me, that was tremendously interesting. And as far as humans go, I guess the work that's being done now by some researchers like Harold Ott up in, at Harvard, Glenn Goddard at Worcester Polytech Institute on, uh, you, know, you know, we have a problem with waiting lists for donors for, for organs. And a lot of people die waiting for an organ transplant. And these guys are taking a completely different tact to waiting around for tissue correct donor heart to come in. Dr. Ott is taking cadaver hearts and literally using a detergent to wash away all of the cellular material inside a, a heart so that the, all that's left is this scaffold, of, you know, sort of a framework of connective tissue. Then he's taking cells from the person who would be the recipient of this heart and converting those cells and their cells from the skin, they don't have to do some kind of crazy biopsy, converting those cells into stem cells, then stimulating those stem cells to become muscle cells. Now, don't forget now, those muscle cells are, are type of muscle cells that you would have in, in the recipient and then embedding those muscle cells into this scaffold and literally growing a heart to order. That just blew me away. And, you know, I said, how are you dealing with the fact that you've got blood vessels that supply the heart? And he sent me to a colleague of his, Glenn Goddard in Worcester Polytech. And this guy showed me, came out with a, with a plate full of, of spinach. And he said, what's this look like? I said, oh, it looks like spinach. He says, look closer. So I look closer. He goes, you see what that, those are? They're veins. And those veins carry fluid just like veins and arteries in a human. So what they're doing is it's very difficult to transplant small blood vessels, especially veins, because they're so thin. So he's taking these spinach leaves, running them once again, a detergent through them, get rid of all of the cellular material, but leaving the cellulose, which is the structural material that makes up those veins, then once again, taking cells from blood vessels of who would be the recipient and embedding them and seeding this plant structure 
with human cells and growing blood vessels. When I saw that, I just, you know, I, I was just amazed. And so that's probably 10 years off, but that would really solve a big problem with regard to donor hearts if you could make your own. Looking at how our conception of the heart and its relation to the body has changed over time. Yeah. So when, when I wrote this book about cannibalism, when I say the word cannibalism, most people have this knee-jerk reaction. And, and so I, I wanted to know why that happened. And so the, originally the chapter title that explored that was called Blame It on the Greeks. Well, it was this, really the same thing for me when I went in to look at where, where did we get this idea that the heart is the seat of emotion and intellect and, and the soul. And, and that, that chapter could have been called Blame It on the Ancient Egyptians. Because these people um, held the heart in, in incredibly high esteem. First of all, their medicine was, they practiced outstanding medicine for the time, but they also believed because they saw the heart beating, they saw it moving, they saw it alive like a human would think, like, like animals or humans, it's alive, it responds to stimuli. If you're scared, it speeds up. Uh, if you're all, you know, if you're chilled out, it sort of calms down as far as how, many, how it beats. So they thought that this was you know, the central organ and they preserved it. And they, and, and they um, you know, with the, with the thought that in the afterlife, the heart would be weighed against the feather of Mott and, and Mott was, uh, was the goddess of truth and justice. In the afterlife, that would determine where you would wind up. So when the ancient Greeks, they, well, the ancient Greeks, when they picked up a lot of the ancient Egyptian medicine, they also brought along this idea of cardiocentrism, the, the, the idea that the heart is the center of, of, of everything. And at that point, their philosophers, their scientists all picked up on this. So it was Aristotle and it's Hippocrates. And so, so this really became a central tenet of Greek medicine and Greek culture. And so then, therefore, it was then passed down to the Romans. And at the same time now, their poets, their artists, their writers, all of these guys sort of jumped onto this idea that was accepted, that the heart was the center of everything, including emotions like uh, especially love. And so that's where this concept uh, grew. Uh, and it still remains. And I, I think most people now believe that the brain has a much more important role than the, in the ancient Greeks, for example, thought that the, the brain acted sort of like a, a radiator to cool the heart. But we know now that if you want to look for uh, the seat of intellect and, and emotion, that, that you've got to look You've got to be um, craniocentric. You've got to look at the brain. So to me, that was really fascinating where that came from. Where are we heading? First of all, this is an, an incredibly complex topic. And, and so I, I'm not a cardiologist. So I went there and tried to figure out some, some interesting takes on these problems that we have. One of the things that's still a problem, besides the fact that we don't have as, as many donor hearts as we would like, is the fact that when blood is cut off to a, a specific region of the heart, then the tissue downstream of that generally a blockage uh, can die. And so this is you're literally des describing what happens after a heart attack. Now, if blood flow resumes by whatever means physicians use, then the unfortunate thing is, is that tissue that has died, those cells that died downstream of the blockage, when they come back, it's more like scar tissue. They're not contractile. They're not cardiac muscle tissue. So that has been a huge problem. So what scientists are trying to do now is to try to figure out how to make that tissue grow back to normal contractile tissue rather than come back and be, in a sense, inoperative. And, and there are animal models out there where, where that's just not the case. It's, people have uh, tropical fish. And I've always, I, I had zebra fish when I was a kid. They're you know, these beautiful little, little tropicals. But the thing is there, it, you can remove 20% of their heart 
And when it grows back, it's all, everything's functional. And so they're looking at how is that taking place? How is the zebrafish growing, first of all, the clotting really quickly, and then growing this framework of connective tissue once again, and then growing new muscle tissue or, you know, so that the heart is, uh, is beating like it normally did. So these are the types of problems that researchers are looking at and, and, and trying to solve. Now, what would you like people picking up the book to take home after reading the book? One take-home message that I have is that you know we have a tendency to look at organs and creatures that aren't human and thinking that they're somehow primitive or that they're inefficient. When I was a kid, you know, for example, Neanderthal man, they were always shown sort of dragging their women around by the hair and they had a club and they were hunched over. And nowadays we realize that that was the case because the first fossils that, that we found of, of Neanderthals and that were reconstructed had severe arthritis. So that's why they were hunched over. But But nowadays... You need to be think. We need to be thinking uh, more clearly and, and with less prejudice towards other organisms. And no matter if you have a creature that doesn't have a heart, or it has a simple dorsal blood vessel that contracts, or a, or, or a heart that has a, a two or three or even four chambers, these are not defective. They're not primitive. They all get the job done, no matter what they look like or the fact that they're different from our heart. So I think that's a really, really important point. They're all doing the same thing. They're, they're moving around a liquid, whether it's blood or if you're an insect, it's hemolymph, and carrying with it oxygen and nutrients and carrying away carbon dioxide, which is, is toxic if it builds up, or waste products. So in order to do that, all sorts of ways have evolved for that to happen. So we really shouldn't look down on, on other creatures because they don't have a four-chambered heart with beautiful valves. We were just talking with Dr. Bill Shutt, his new book, Pump. A Natural History of the Heart. Dr. Shutt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.